Ecclesiastes 7, verses 1 through 14. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to the heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. This is the word of the Lord. How's everybody doing? I want to make one quick announcement before we pray and uh, get started on this text, this happy, happy text. Um, the, the announcement is this. Um, the season of Lent, we, we've kind of talked about this a little bit the last couple of weeks. I just want to mention it again and then add something to it. Um, the season of Lent began in the early church as, as a season of kind of preparation for those who were kind of new to the Christian faith, who had come to believe in Jesus and believe the gospel, and were getting ready to be baptized. And so for the 40 days um, from Ash Wednesday leading up to Easter morning, um, these new converts, these, these new um, ones who would believe in Jesus would spend these 40 days basically getting, receiving instruction um, on the basics of the faith, the basics of the gospel. Um, they would spend the, the season examining their own souls, kind of preparing for this, this kind of entrance into the Christian community. And then on Easter, they'd be baptized. Um, we've had some people express some interest in possibly being baptized on Easter. Um, and so we, we're going to do that. Um, we're going to put uh, something up on the city um, or you can come and talk to my, either myself or Dan. Dan's the guy who welcomed you all here. Um, talk to one of us after the service, and we'll kind of set this thing up. But if you're interested in being baptized on Easter morning, um, whether you've come to faith in Jesus recently um, or tonight or at any time, um, we would love, uh, I mean, we'd love to baptize you on Easter morning. So talk to us. We'll post something on the city, and you can sign up there. Um, we'll, we'll spend an evening together um, sometime between now and then talking about the gospel, talking about what baptism means so you can learn more about it. Um, and we'll go from there. But we'll talk about this next couple weeks. Just wanted to throw it out there. Okay, let's pray. Father, I pray that, um, as I've asked you to do the last two weeks, God, I pray that you'd do it again. That, That you would help us to believe the words of Solomon here. These words that we confess to be your words. That when he says that um, the end of a thing is better than the beginning or, or the, 
a season of death is better than the, the birth of a thing. God, I pray that you'd help us to listen to him before we dismiss him as a, as a crazy, cranky old man. And God, I pray that you would help us to, to do business with, with the questions, the, the reasons that all of us have for being here tonight. What it is exactly we think that you're for. Um, that you would help us to, to look in the depths of who we are and ask the question, why are we here tonight? Why do we sing these songs? Why do we pray these prayers? Why do we do the stuff that we do when, when it's pertaining religion or Christianity or you? That we'd look at those questions and we deal with the answers that are there. And for those of us who need to, God, I pray that we'd repent. That we'd come to you as a treasure, as, as the source of life, as the place where we find forgiveness and mercy and joy itself. So God, come. And God, I pray the next, next few minutes that these words would convict us and they would change us and they would challenge us. Um, and they'd call us to yourself. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. There is an ongoing debate in my house about when and what kind of dog we're to own. Um, There are two main candidates for this. Um, Myself representing one side of the thing and my wife representing the other side of the thing. Um, I won a dog yesterday, last summer actually. I won a um, German Shepherd or a Black Lab and my kids are all on my side. Um, the cat and my wife represent the other side of the equation. And um, she, the, the weakness in her position is that the, uh, the, the date keeps getting pushed back. There is no set date. There's just this kind of rolling. This is going to drive me crazy. Is it okay if I do this? And then it's that thing's going to drive me crazy. Okay. Um, and so... It keeps rolling back, right? So it, I think at one point it was six, and then it was seven, and now it's 12. Um, so how much farther is it going to go? So that's what we're here tonight to do. We're going to settle this question right here and now. <laughs> no. Um, no, but what's at stake, and, and actually that's the weakness of my wife's position. The strength of my wife's position is that she knows why I want a dog and why my kids want a dog. You see, we don't want a dog so that at 5 a.m., when it's a puppy, we, or 4 a.m., whatever, we can take it outside in the cold and the snow and make it pee. Um, she knows that um, Hayes doesn't want a dog so that he can put a leash on the dog and walk it through our neighborhood um, doing what I make fun of all the time. These people who walk around with plastic bags on their hands so that they can pick up the excrement. That's the proper word. Okay, and so th- there's this question of, of why we want the dog. What's the dog there for? Is the, is the dog there to be cuddly and cute and us to laugh at it as it kind of romps around and fights the cat and gets dominated by the cat? Or is the desire that we have for the dog to, to do everything that goes with having a dog? Not just the, the pleasant side of kind of throwing a ball, you know, this picture of throwing a ball in the backyard and the dog racing after the ball and, and these wonderful pictures of sitting on the porch at night Smoking your pipe with the dog happily at your side, just there to bark at things. And, and this, this nice picture of the dog, or the bad picture of the dog, what, what forces the question, and where my wife has a great deal of wisdom in this whole thing, is that she recognizes that we want one without the other. Like, like we want the fun, cute part, which is like, 
20% of the time. And not that the, I mean, I'm, and I'm for the dog, you know. And, and, or the 80% of the time where it's work, it's, it's labor, it's smelly, it's, it's, it's whatever. But, but to get the dog means you get all of it. Um, we're going we're gonna to follow Solomon's thinking here. But, but I wanted to set this question in front of you because it's an absolutely central question to ask. What do you want God for? Because some of us, we, we were raised in churches and traditions, or maybe we just kind of drifted into the thought that God is somehow our butler. He, he's, he, he's there to bring us the things that we need. He's, he's kind of the, 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 the great God in the sky who brings us the life that we deserve, the life that we want. Yeah, he, he kind of guides us morally so that we know we don't do these things, we do do these things. But at the end of the day, God is there to give me the life that I want. And my prayer tonight, as we wrestle with this text, is that as you begin to discover quite bluntly that Solomon says God is not like that at all, that you'd wrestle with the question of why you're here tonight, or this late afternoon now with the sun. But why, why do you sing these songs? Some of you pray before meals. Why do you pray before meals? Are you bargaining with God? Do you think if you do the right stuff, if you check off the right boxes, if you kind of make sure the right stuff happens at the right time, that then, then God somehow owes you the life that you want. He owes you the, the, the money that you want. He owes you the pleasure that you want. He owes you the stuff that you want. He owes you the wife or the husband that you want or the job that you want or, or the, the, the sense of exhilaration in life that you want. Or is he enough for you? Because at the end of the day, that's going to be the question. So let's get going with this happy text. Um, if you were here the last, if these are your first three weeks at our church, um, you got two weeks of money and a week on death, which is a blast. So uh, we'll get to lollipops and bubblegum later. Okay, so he begins right off the bat by, by setting up some, some, um, some contrast for us, right? So he begins right off the bat and he says, a good name is better than precious ointment. And this, this line that just should kind of hit you right in the face. Because um, that first one, everybody says, oh yeah, you know, that's, that's great. Um, who uses precious ointment anymore? Anyway, um, I'd rather have a good name. That's great. But then this next line should hit you, up, hit you across the face. And the day of death than the day of birth. Now, I don't think he's talking about his own death. I don't think he's saying that the day of my death will be better than the day of my birth. I think he's talking about, um, in a sense, as we gather as a community, as we do life together in community or in our families, um, that there's a day of death, a day when someone dies that you know. And, and, and there's days that surround that. Um, when I was in eighth grade, my, my father passed away. He, he died. Um, I never understood why we say passed away. He died. He was dead. Um, and so... On that day, the, the days surrounding that day, our house was full of people and casseroles and, and everyone was wearing black and, and that was kind of, 
There were days surrounding it. So that was the day of death. And it was a, a whole season of death. And it was this whole season of remembering my father's life and talking about my father's life and, and, and talking about what it meant that death was right there. And, and we were gathered um, with our closest friends, family members that we hadn't seen for months were there. And we were all together in one place. And that was the day of death, kind of that season of recognizing, remember, mourning, being faced with the reality of death, which seems so foreign when it's happening, right? I mean, have you ever had like a, a friend or um, a grandparent or a parent die? It's like this, this reality that's always kind of kept at bay. It's over somewhere else. It's something you might hear about on the news occasionally or, or, or something that happens in a movie. Um, but death is never this thing that touches you. It's never this thing that actually kind of grips your life. It's out there somewhere. And then all of a sudden, um, someone around you dies. It's like this alien thing kind of invades your life. It's no longer this thing that we kind of talk about or whisper about or um, talk about that, that it's out there, kind of beyond the horizon. It's actually right there in your face. But then the day of birth, we have three kids, and we've only had two days of birth. Um, yeah. um, it's, I haven't had any days of birth. I'm, I am a man without any birthing experience. And so, but my wife has had two days of birth. Um, and she might say that the day of death is better than the day of birth. But, but um, the day of birth, it's kind of the same deal, right? Um, babies and children and having them and being responsible for them, they're kind of this thing that's on TV shows or um, your friends, it happened to them or, or those kind of things. It's out there. It's a distant sort of thing. It's not touching your life. It's not invading your life. But when it happens, it's a completely different deal in some senses, but exactly the same in others, right? Like tons of people show up at your house. Or your hospital room, which is great. You love, I'm sure, women having strained through. I have no idea what, what the experience would be like, but having strained through the whole process, and then all of a sudden, people are in your room, and you're in the condition that you're in after you give birth, and 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 they're just there, and they bring food and casseroles, and they're not wearing black this time. They have blue balloons and pastel pink balloons and, and, and it's happy and it's celebratory but, but it's a day, right? It's a season that surrounds this reality that a, that, a, that a child comes and it seems way happier. I mean, guys, we get cigars. And nobody gave me a cigar but that happens, I hear. And so, um, but it's a day, it's a season, it's happy, it's celebratory. Um, you name the child. You, everyone, you send out details about the length of your child and the weight of your child and there'll never be another season in life where your child will want their weight and length published. But, but you let it known and everyone celebrates this day and it's happy and it's good. And, and, and it would seem like utter insanity to say that the day of death where everyone's wearing black and it's quiet and people are weeping and crying and it's sad. It's something we avoid talking about with all the might that we know. It seems like utter insanity that we would call that day better than the day of birth. Right? I mean, it seems like it's crazy. Solomon says that the day of death is better than the day of birth. He, he says the house of mourning is better than the house of feasting. He, he says that to receive a rebuke from a wise man is better than the songs of fools. He sets up this contrast back and forth, and, and he holds up death, mourning, 
sorrow, rebuke, as things that are better, more wisdom producing than than the days of joy and laughter and song and birth. Is he crazy? Everybody knows that's not true. That's not what Solomon says. Um, this, uh, th- this reality in my own life just, just jumped out at me this week. Uh, my, uh, my wife, uh, my wife, not my wife, definitely not my wife, my mother. <laughs> um, <laughs> my mother, uh, she lives in a nursing home in Lakewood. And, uh, and we go to that nursing home um, regularly. We, we visit her. Um, we were there yesterday, actually. Um, and from the moment I walk in that place, I mean, I, I've just got almost like a twitch, right? Like some of you go to hospitals, you know what I'm talking about? If you're a nurse, it doesn't count, don't answer. But like, if you go in there and it's just this, I, for a long time I couldn't put my finger on it. Like it's just constant discomfort. There's a certain smell about the place, sometimes more distinct than others. There's... Um, Really interesting people there. But it's just offsetting. And the, the entire time I'm there, I, I talked to a guy who lives across the hall. His name's um, Roger. I spent the better part of today worrying that I was going to forget his name. Um, and and I have, I've had multiple conversations with Roger. Roger is, has had a, um, a very, very interesting life. A, a life very, very similar to yours and to mine. And I was talking to Roger a few weeks back, and, and Roger's half blind, and Roger um, likes to wheel around in his wheelchair wearing no shirt and sweatpants, and, and Roger likes to wheel into other people's rooms on accident because he thinks it's his room because he's half blind. But um, I, I was talking to Roger, and I was asking about his life. I, you, you kind of assume as you meet people like Roger that, that Roger's life was way, way different than your life. And it dawned on me as I was talking about Roger, everything that, that bugs me about the place, um, everything that, that, that drives me crazy, everything that, that makes me cringe almost the entire time I'm there, that makes me feel like I'm sweating the entire time, just, just dying to get out of there, to, to have some excuse to leave. It's just a horribly guilt-stirring thing when it's your mom sitting in front of you. Is that this place, from the moment I step into it to the moment I, I leave, reminds me that death is coming. That these smells will be my smells someday. That the, the slow, methodical ramblings of Roger someday will likely be my slow ramblings. I can't wait for the day that I'm in a wheelchair, shirtless, wheeling around. It's the pressing reality of the one thing that we, that we spend most of our lives trying to forget, trying to push off, trying to pretend that it's, it's somehow just always over the horizon, it's never coming for us. It presses in on me from every side. It's a reminder that I'm mortal. It's a reminder that I'm weak. It's a reminder that this, this, as I'm sitting right in the middle of it, this is the end of all mankind. But there's another place I really like to go. And so you guys are the nursing home people, and you guys are the Falling Rock Tap House people. <clears throat> um, and Falling Rock is, is the greatest pub I I've, I've know of in the world. 
It has amazing selection of beverages. It has really good wings. And it has leather couches set in a community-style circle. And so you have interesting conversations as you drink interesting beverages and eat hot wings and dip them in your blue cheese. And you have wonderful conversations with very, very interesting people who are very much like you. Or if you're like me, they're like you. If you're like me. And, and, it's, and it's fun. And death feels like it's far, far away. Unless you get the really hot wings. I mean, it's, it's great. Like, it, it's fun. You have interesting conversation. And once you've had two or three beverages, conversation increases. And, and people like you. And it's, it's fun. And it's good. And it's always just pushing death just a little bit back. Because this is what life is like. This is what life is all about. It's fun. It's conversations. It's the blessings of God in a, in a glass and in a on a bone. And it's all of these wonderful things. And Solomon says that going to the nursing home, being reminded of death, being reminded of the end that's coming, that's absolutely coming, it is a horizon that is rushing towards me, is far, far better than those beers and wings. Because that's reality. That's what's coming for you. Those smells, that forgetfulness, that pain, that grieving, that mourning, that last dying breath, that's what's coming. Told you it was a happy Sunday. And Solomon looks at both of those and says, this is better. This is far, far better. And it's better because of this. We're going to explore this the rest of our time now. It's better because nothing wakes you up to the reality that all of the pleasures of this life, all of them, drink, and sex, and a fast car, and a fun house, and, and, and relationships, and Stella's, and a new wardrobe. I have a Stella. I like it. It's broken. Um, <laughs> it's in the house of mourning right now. Um, that, that all of those things, no matter how real they feel right now, no matter how good they feel right now, no matter how much pleasure is to be found in those things right now in this season of life, there's a day coming when they will be no longer. In the end, these things can't provide anything lasting, anything certain, anything unchanging. They are they're there now, but they may be gone tomorrow, but at the very least, they will be gone the day you die. These things, all of these things, these wonderful, happy, glorious, beautiful things. My orange Stella is beautiful. The, 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 not really, but go with me. The, the, whatever these things are, no matter how great they seem right now, in the end, they're not what you long for. They're not what your soul was made to take in and enjoy. In the end of the day, death is coming and will strip all of them from you. And if that's all you had, you have nothing. Absolutely Nothing. So the house of mourning is better than the house of feasting. The, the, the day of death 
being reminded that death is near. It's not far off. It's not hidden. It's coming for you. It's better. But who designed it this way? I mean, does it have to be this way? Solomon's answer is no, it doesn't have to be this way. Death doesn't have to be constantly coming at you. Everything in your life doesn't have to be. The the fact that it's going to be stripped from you someday doesn't have to be true. It doesn't have to be the way that the world is ordered. But Solomon says it's that way because of one reason and one reason alone. Look look with me. You've got to see this. Verse 13. We read it last week. I I want to read it to you again. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Death is coming. The day of mourning is coming. The day of sorrow is coming. The day when when you need rebuke is coming. It's coming because God has set up the universe that way. We spend an enormous amount of time trying to let God off the hook from texts like this one. That we look at our lives and we look at all the stuff that makes us mad, that, that, that frustrates our designs and our directions and the things that we want for our lives. And we, we, we look at all the things that intersect that, 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 that confront that, that somehow try to bend that away or keep us from the very things that we spend our entire life trying to get, trying to put our hands on, the very things we try to stuff our lives with, um, and we're constantly being thwarted. And Solomon's answer to why that happens, why that happens again and again and again, and why one day it will finally and ultimately happen when, uh, when you die, is that God made it that way. That your straight path to what you want. Some of you are um, type A people. The rest of us feel for you. You have a goal. You have steps going back 15 years. I have a, a new friend, actually, and he literally has the next 10 years of his life planned out. And I laughed because I was in this text this week. And I thought, that's a very straight line. Behold the work of God. (laughs) And so you you have a plan, you have a a mission, a goal. Here's where I'm going to get. Here's what my life's going to look like in 10 years. Here's how things are all going to work out, just how I want them to. (coughs) Here's how things, I want things to be. I'm going to get some water. Is that okay? okay? If one of you said no, I would get it anyway. <clears throat> and something, something's going to happen to bend it. Things aren't going to work out the way you want them to. Um, some interruption is going to happen. Some disease is going to happen. Some death is going to happen. Something causing mourning is going to happen. Something that breaks up your perfect little plan. Something that seemed, when, when, when you lined out as straight and becomes bent, it's going to happen. And in that moment, the temptation that you will feel will be, God, I went to church. God, I prayed those prayers. I sang those songs. I did all the things that you wanted me to do. And now my life is bent. Why is it bent? Why can't you keep things straight? 
And you'll shake your fist at the heavens and you'll question, why does my life look like the way it looks right now? And Solomon says, because God bent it. Behold the work of God who can make straight what he makes crooked. So so right off the bat, I want to say two things before I say a third. One, think about death often. It's good for you. If you have a relative in a nursing home, go there a lot. Do whatever it takes to remind yourself constantly that all that you fill your day with, all that you fill your life with, it's, it's never going to give you what you think it promises. And then secondly, don't let God off the hook for that. It's not just the nature of things. This is an active verb here. God, just kind of step, step, God did not just kind of set up the universe and then step back and say, I'm sorry, it's just kind of that's how it's going to work out. No, he bends it. Behold the work, the work, the ongoing work of God to frustrate your plans, to quench your hopes, to take your dreams and giggle a little at them. This is the work of God. People ask the question, what does God do? This is one of the weeks I get to say, God frustrates you. God takes all of your straight line plans to happiness and thwarts them. (laughs) Your dreams of life and happiness, he crushes them. (laughs) Come on, that's what it says. This is the work of God. And and the more and the sooner that you can remember that the house of death and the house of sorrow and the place of mourning is better, the sooner you'll be reminded that the things that you hold with your hands, they don't guarantee you anything. God has made sure that they won't. So so that brings a... uh, pressing question upon us. Is God just mean? Like, um, my children have a friend, a good friend, and his father will know exactly who I'm talking about. And um, one of the things, he's not mean, sorry, that was a really bad thing to say. He's not mean, but he, he loves to play this game where if they're playing with something, he will take it and run. Okay. Um, and is God like that? It's God like, oh, Trey, you're getting entirely too happy and satisfied with law school. Let's blow up DU. (laughs) Is he, Brian, you really like Falling Rock Tap House? Out of business. Is that what God's like? And some of you, hopefully, in this room are immediately protesting. No, that's not what God's like. That, That is not the heart of God, as I've seen it over and over and over again played out in Scripture, at least it doesn't seem to be. I mean, God can't be that. Why, why would we worship a God like that? <clears throat> and so this whole thing presses upon us the question, what is he like? Because Solomon says here that the crookedness in your life, the frustration that your life meets, God did that. 
But Solomon gives us two clues. Two precious, beautiful clues to tell us that there's a purpose there. A good purpose there. Not just to frustrate you, not just to kind of be the the mean kid who steals your toy and runs away or or finds a thing that makes you happy and decides to just crush it right in front of your eyes. That's not what God's like. But he, he does bend your life. He does frustrate your purposes. But he does so for a reason. So I want you to look at two, three clues. I have three. Ready? Three clues. First, look at verse three. Solomon says this. He says, sorrow is better than laughter. And there's a four. And if you're like me, fours get you really excited. Because they tell you why. And I'm a nerd. But you should get really excited when you are reading something and there's a four there. You should circle it even. Like it's circled. So four. Sorrow is better than laughter. Four. Because here's why sorrow is better than laughter. By sadness of face, the heart is made glad. So that's our first clue. That this sadness, this mourning, the the, the reality of the bentness of your life and the fact that your your purposes, your goals, your dreams, they will absolutely be frustrated. Uh, Here's the first clue that, that as God does that, as he makes crooked, what you've tried to make straight as he bends the, the, the course of your life away from the very things that you're pursuing with all of your might, that there's some good reason there, that there's some good purpose there. He says that, that these moments of sadness, these circumstantial frustrations, that they lead to something deeper, something in here that's happiness that's going at this idea of joy that Solomon's been hammering at us for chapters. That your circumstances may be difficult, they may be frustrating, but, but it's through this sadness, it's through this crookedness, the heart is made glad. The heart is, is literally filled up with joy. That's the first clue. Second clue. <clears throat> he says that first, my, one of my favorite verses in Ecclesiastes, verse 10 says, say not, why were the former days better than these? Do you guys know that guy who still talks about high school football? It's not from wisdom. Okay. Um, <clears throat> verse 11, he says, wisdom is good with an inheritance. An advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So all of this um, seeing and being confronted with mourning, being confronted with death, being confronted with sorrow, all of that, it, it births something. It gives kind of an understanding of life. It gives wisdom. It gives wisdom that doesn't look back at the past days and say, oh, I wish I could go back there. Because things could be straight now. If I could just go back there and make the right decisions, invest my money here instead of here, uh, do the right things, go to this college instead of this college, whatever the thing is, then the course would be straight. Wisdom looks at life. It looks at the reality of death. It looks at these days of sorrow. And it looks at all of that. And it says... I, I, it says the wrong way. It, it sees life for what it is. There's a purpose here. It preserves 
life. It, it helps you to understand um, that at the end of the day, you don't have control of things. You don't get to manage things on your own. In other words, there's a purpose in all of this. This is clue two. The, the, the wisdom is, is, is the fruit. These verses are the fruit of, of seeing mourning, of experiencing sorrow, of recognizing the coming of death. And the third clue. Verse 14, Solomon says this, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And then in the day of adversity, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. And then there's so that. So essentially he said everything that we've spent the last few minutes saying, that God bends life, that when things go well, Receive that from God. When things don't go well, receive that from God. And recognize that he does both. And here's the reason he does both. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. What? So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Isn't it funny when people change the inflection in their voice thinking people understand it better? So the man may not find out anything. What's that mean? Here's what I think it means in light of kind of how he's, this is a, a theme that he keeps returning back to. So that when you look at your life, when you look at history, you'll know in the depths of your soul you don't control it. Um, remember the, the theme back in chapter 3 where he talks about there's a, this day and this day. There's a day of, of reaping, a day of sowing. There's a day of building up and a day of tearing down. That God's appointed all these different days. And that he's done all of that. He's appointed everything that happens, whether it's prosperity or adversity, whether it's a day of birth or the day of life. Whatever those things are, he's appointed them. And he's appointed them for one foundational reason. That you'd fear him. That you'd be confronted with the reality that he is substance that we long for. He is the one that rules the universe sovereignly by his power. That you don't direct your own life, he directs your life. That you can't set up the right plan and the right scheme and put the investments in the right place and, 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 and raise your kids just perfectly in the right educational plan or the right kind of stepped up deal like with all mapped out with charts that you can't do that enough to the point that you control the outcome of what comes next. You can't know it. You can't find it out. You can't determine it. Only he does. And he bends the world so that you're so that your certainty it is grounded in one insoluble fact. You do not rule the world. He dictates your life so that over and over and over and over and over again, you were told you don't control anything. You don't rule anything I do
And we live in a day and an age that with every ounce of strength in our being, we kick against that. So that whether through financial planning or the right business plan or the right educational plan, that we think that we can dictate to God exactly what our life should be and what it should mean. And Solomon's answer to you is you need to think about death more. You need to think about what might happen in the next intersection more. Because the things that you hold up, that you squeeze onto with all of your might, that you try to take hold of, that you try to direct your life to get, in the end, you have no control over it. And in the end, they will not satisfy. For God has bent the world. And he's bent the world so that we might fear him, so that we might know him. He's bent the world so that we would stop clinging onto and spending every ounce of energy trying to conceive of how can we get this thing, be it money, be it the right advancement or the right job or the right set of clothing or the right amount of money in our bank account or the right distribution of wealth into this account and this account and this account and this account and this real estate investment or, or, or the right amount of pleasure. If I can just get the right number of experiences, the, the right number of days in Europe or Asia or Hawaii, if I can just get those things out there, then I'll have everything that I long for and hope for. But, but you need to know, just right off the bat, God wants you to know this as you leave here. God has bent all of it because none of those things will satisfy. None of those things will give you what your heart groans for and longs for more than anything. Oh, they may bring pleasure for a little bit until they run out and then you need the next one and the next one and the next one. But God has something so much better for you. And it's not meanness that will rip it from your hands. It is not meanness that will take it and run away. It is the very kindness and grace and mercy of God. That you would not trust to anything under the sun, but instead that you would look to him. And I want to prove it to you with a text. So flip over with me to Romans chapter 8. And as you're turning there, I want to justify the connection because this could be one of those deals where Brian just randomly needs a text to end the sermon on. And so he just, oh, Romans 8, it's a good one. Um, and so we jump there. I, I want to tie this text, I want to root it. Ecclesiastes 7. And, and, it's, and, and the way I'm going to root it there is that this, this theme of suffering, this theme of, the, this theme of the reality of death, that things are being stripped from us, and one, and two, um, this, this idea that God is the one who d is doing it, it serves as the ground for everything else he says in chapter 8. Okay? So, so if you look in verse 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings, so their suffering, sufferings of this present time are not worthy, worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So he goes on in verse 19, For the creation waits with eager, eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. The one who subjected it in hope is God. 
devil doesn't subject things in hope. So that's why I go to Romans 8. Does everybody believe me? Nod. If you don't, just keep your head down. Okay. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> so, so it's this idea that, that, one, that there are sufferings. And he's writing to the Romans, they're about to go through a lot of sufferings. The crookedness of the path is about to become very, very apparent to them. And he wants them to know one thing for sure before he says anything else, that God is the one who subjected it. This crookedness that you're about to experience, this this brokenness, this fact of mourning and sufferings, it's not an accident, it's not some alien force coming in and invading God's good crooked Good, crooked. Good straight line that, you, that he kind of you know, set up in a partnership with you so you could have all the things you wanted. Um, th- th- this, isn't, um, this isn't some alien force coming to invade it. This is God who's subjecting it. And hope. It's like a so that. So Why? This is good. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan. Does your life ever feel like groaning? Inwardly, as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Why is your life crooked? Why is your pursuit of pleasure and joy and satisfaction in anything under the sun, why is it constantly frustrated? And if it's not being frustrated, why is it really, really important, according to Solomon, that you realize that it could be and that it will be? Because God has subjected everything to frustration. He's made it crooked. Why? That you might be redeemed. That you might be saved. And here's where this text draws this dividing line. That We're going to go back to the opening question of why, what is God for? Why are you here? Why are you praying these prayers and singing these songs? Because if the answer to that is I want him to give me a good life a meaningful life. I want him to give me a secure life or a pleasurable life or a a happy life. You need to know that God has declared his purpose in this book to be quite the opposite of that. He does not exist to give you those things. But rather to to give you a life that would would call you, that would plead with you, that that would cry out to you to turn away from all of those vain promises, to turn away from all of that vanity, that vapor, that chasing after the wind, that you would turn away from all of those things and find your redemption, find your salvation in that you know him. He has bent the world for one reason only. That you'd stop trying to find your satisfaction, your meaning, or your hope in anything under the sun. Instead, that you would turn to him. That you would come to him as a child. And stop coming to him as though he were your butler. 
purpose of Christ's death was not to give you riches. It wasn't to give you the, the, the perfect setting and the perfect home and the perfect life and the perfect marriage. It was to give you himself. In the end, it's the only place where these groanings, these longings will be satisfied. Let's pray. God, the psalmist says that all our fountains are new. The Bible seems to indicate over and over and over again that that confession is the line between salvation and death. That despite sorrow, despite mourning, despite pressing, rushing towards us reality of death that will take everything from us. That our our hearts are filled with joy. Because the one thing we get is you. And so God, I I plead with you now. God, if there are those here who who don't believe a word of the gospel, they've never believed a word of the gospel, they, they wandered in here on accident maybe. God, I pray that they would hear Solomon's cry that that everything they're bending their life to get will frustrate them. And you'll make sure of it. That their only hope is you, their only hope is Jesus, their only hope for joy and meaning and forgiveness and life is to turn away from all of those things and turn to you. God, for those of us in this room maybe who've been Christians for a really long time, Because the air that we breathe and the commercials that we watch and and the the lies that we're told on every single hour of every single day, God, we've begun to believe that somehow you you exist to serve us, you exist to give us what you want, what what we want, rather than what we need. God, I pray that we would repent, that we'd confess that, that all of our joy, all of our life is to be found in you and you alone. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.